Here we go. I got to tell you that I, I always go into camp. This is my 15th year of doing Camp Araminta, which is the camp that we created um, in this diocese for, for summer camp. Before that, I worked at another camp um, in the Episcopal Church. I've never come into camp that I did not feel completely inadequately prepared. There is always a sense in which it's like, I, I just, I, I, I really fight against sort of this sort of self-condemnation of just sort of like, I'm just not ready. I should have, I probably should have spent three days in quiet prayer and fasting before camp, you know, but I didn't. Instead, what I did was I did all the things I needed to do so that I could go away for a week. And so by the time I get to the camp week, I feel myself a bit inadequately prepared. Some of you can't appreciate that, that you're, you're such prepare people that you would, you would have spent all the time doing all those things that need to do so you'd be prepared. Well, that's not me. Sorry, I'm a little different than that. And this is my confession, not yours this morning. But in some way, shape, or form, we all feel unrighteous. We feel unworthy to stand before people and do whatever it is we do. Whatever our occupation is, whatever our, our role is, the, the relationships we're in, there's this sense in which we all feel as if somehow we are not ready or righteous before a loving God. I wonder who your heroes are this morning. Who are the, who are the people you look up to as examples of righteous people? Maybe it's somebody famous like William Wilberforce, who, though he was born wealthy into an aristocrat family, although he had was primed to go into parliamentary government in England. He risked everything by taking a, a really hard stand against the uh, slavery, the slave trade, and fought tirelessly, even to the point of, of really killing himself by poor health. He fought endlessly to see the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. Maybe somebody like that, that you just admire. Maybe it's somebody more obscure, somebody that you know that the rest of us wouldn't know, but that they just exemplify righteousness. And for me, that's, that looks like, for, this is for me, it looks like somebody that's willing to take a really tough stand no matter what the consequences are. Somebody like John Stott, an Anglican priest who only died a few years ago. John Stott was willing to even challenge people like Billy Graham. Can you imagine taking on Billy Graham and publicly saying, uh, Dr. Graham, I think you're incorrect here, and, and being willing to, 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 to have the strength and the courage to, to, to call even incredibly you know, influential people, powerful people like Billy Graham to task and to, and to challenge their position. That, that for me, is, it seems almost unobtainable, that level of that righteous indignation, if you will, to stand on your principles. One of my heroes is a guy named Charles Simeon, who is a, I, I, I'm a priest, so, you know, my, my heroes are priests, I guess. Uh, John Stott was a priest. So Charles Simeon was a priest in England again uh, in the 1800s, I believe. And, 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 and what I love about Simeon, Simeon had the conviction that he was to preach to the poor, and, and, that, and that he was going to make the word of God available to all. And so he started having evening services. And the, the wealthy were so opposed to Simeon that they, in those days, and I may have said this before, so I apologize if you've heard this story, but they had, they had box pews that could be locked, if you can imagine. So you, you paid for a pew and you got to lock it. 
And so you got to decide who or who could not sit in your pew. And so Simeon was having these evening lectures. And, and so what, the way that the, the wealthy in his congregation decided to get him was that they locked the pews so, the, so that the poor people couldn't sit in the pews. And so they stood in the aisle. And Simeon preached to them. And they wouldn't give him oil to light the lamps at the sides of the church. So they brought in candles. And Simeon preached to them. And he was hugely unpopular. People would throw things at him as he walked through the streets. And he, would, he, was, he was not well loved. And yet he stood by his convictions and he preached and he preached and he preached. And he stayed in the city 50 years. You see why he's my hero. Because I've been here almost 19 years. Now, I haven't gotten the same treatment. But I'm beginning to go, okay, Lord... Are you ever, you know, is this 50 years? Is that, is that my task here? 50 years? But he, he went on and on and on. And, and finally, he began to break through spiritually in the lives of that community. And the church, again, my history professor is to my right back here, so I may get some of these facts. But the church was poised in a seminary community. And what happened was that over the course of 50 years, Simeon began to preach not only to poor parishioners, but to future clergy. And because of his strong conviction over 50 years, Simeon transformed the Church of England by raising up a generation of leaders who weren't afraid to stand in the dark and preach to poor people no matter what the wealthy said or tried to do to stop you. When Simeon died, they lined the streets. I believe it was Cambridge. Was it Cambridge? It was Cambridge. They lined the streets and applauded this man and his valiant courage. There's the mark of righteousness. Now, why do I share that incredible story about Simeon? I, I share it because I feel so far from it. And I know myself to be so weak as to probably have packed my bags and left on year two when the rich people locked me out of the pews and wouldn't give me oil for the lamps. I'm so aware of my own weakness, my own unrighteousness, how weak I can become in terms of even my own convictions to shy away and to do that which I know to be wrong. Now, I'm not about to confess some grave sin to you. I'm, I'm wanting to express to you the, the, the sentiment that's going on in Isaiah 57 today. Because as, as Isaiah proclaims to the people, we come to chapter 57 and the Lord begins to speak a message to Isaiah to speak to the people. And I believe it's a message for us. I, I tried really hard to preach on Ephesians 2, which I told David I was going to preach on. And the Lord kept bringing me back to Isaiah 57. I believe it's a word for us this morning. If you have a Bible there in front of you, grab it. Or if you want to pull out your smartphone, Isaiah 57, 14 through 21 
you need to know the setup for this here. The, the setup is that back in Isaiah 56 verse 1, God has proclaimed that we are to be righteous people. And he talks about eunuchs and he talks about foreigners and he talks about how they have exemplified righteousness to Israel and how they have done a good job of, of showing them what righteous character, what Charles Simeon type character looks like. And yet as we go on in Isaiah 56, and into Isaiah 57, what you realize is, the, that, is that Israel has been utterly unfaithful, has been utterly unrighteous. They have failed to keep God's standards. Though they are God's chosen people, though they are blessed with all the, the fruits of, 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 of God's love and protection, yet they are unfaithful. They chase after every available God. They look for every way to advantage themselves over others. They are unfaithful to God and they are unfaithful in their practices with one another. And so we come to Isaiah 57, 14 through 21. But the strangest thing happens. The Lord does not declare judgment on them, but rather mercy. And that's where we pick up with verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. Okay, what? In the face of our recognition that, that, that we are unrighteous, that, that we don't have the strength of our, our, our righteous heroes, that we, we feel as if we are in no way near anything near obtaining to what, what the sort of righteousness that we've, we've seen in them, the Lord says he himself is going to remove the obstacles and prepare the way. He's going to build up his people. His people that he's just spent the last chapter declaring is unrighteous. He himself is going to do that. For thus says the Lord, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits the eternity whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and the holy place and also with him who is of a contrite, that is a broken, a sorrowful heart, lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. One biblical scholar I read said that this one verse is a distilled form of the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that, that is that's so theologically thick, it's to almost be like, this is my words, like pouring syrup, it's so thick here. Three things that Isaiah says. In the face of people who fail to be the righteous doers of righteousness that God would ask, us to, ask of us as his people, not unbelievers, but us who call Jesus Lord and Master, he says, I am the God who is high and lofty, who inhabits eternity, and whose name is holy. God is utterly complete apart from us. He, is, he lives in eternity. He is not a part of his creation, but he has created all things. And he is holy. He does only that which is righteous transcendent God 
But then the next phrase is, is completely, almost seems contradictory because he, he dwells in the high and holy lifted up place in eternity and he also dwells with the contrite and the lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. So here's God who is transcendent other, holy, and yet he comes to be with the brokenhearted. He comes to be with the lowly. Who are the lowly? The ones who've been humbled. The one who are willing to say, I have fallen short. I'm weak. I am unworthy of my spiritual heroes. God says, I'm the holy God, but I dwell with the contrite heart, with the broken and the lowly. Now, it's interesting because if you go back to the early chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about being himself a stumbling block for his rebellious people. And, and, he, and he talks about the judgment that's come upon them. What's changed between chapter 8, say, of Isaiah and chapter 57? Well, chapters 52 and 53. And in chapter 52 and 53, Isaiah talks about this suffering servant. This one who's like a lamb led to the slaughter. Who God has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. He was stricken, beaten for our transgression. Bruised for our iniquities. The judgment of God was placed upon him. And then God says, but he will receive a portion in the righteous because God will not abandon him. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus who comes and is willing to be broken of heart, contrite, lowly, to identify with us. Not in the greatness of our righteousness, not in our very best moment when we, we actually do the right thing, but in the depths of our everyday quagmire lives where we know how far we, we, far we short, we fall. Can't even get the words out. He's there with the contrite, with a broken heart and the lowly. Man, on the cusp of going into my 15th year of camp, I need to hear that. <laughs> Because I feel inadequate, I feel unprepared, I feel overwhelmed. Good news, the Lord dwells with the lowly and the contrite. But not only does he dwell with them, he dwells with them, that third phrase, I've already said it, but to revive the heart of the contrite and to revive the spirit of the lowly. That's the good hope we have in Christ, that if today you feel that humility, you feel that lowliness, you feel that contrite heart, you feel that failure, the Lord has come to revive you. He's come to revive me. And he wants to do it in our lives and our hearts. Love verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would, draw, would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I have made. Basically the Lord's saying, look, I have to discipline my people. I have, I'm a righteous God. I cannot let you do unrighteousness and not point it out to you. Not only because it's, it would be wrong and you would be angry if I was, if I was wishy-washy and sometimes I punish wrong and sometimes I didn't I have to be the righteous just God I am but yet I also realize that 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 if I just I just 
Lord the boom forever, that if I'm angry with you forever, my creation, that you'll grow weak and weary. And, and I'll have to end up destroying the very thing that I've created. And God says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to destroy my creation. I, I want to call it to righteousness, and that's why I've come. I will not contend forever. God is angry for a while, but his love is eternal. That's what he's saying there. Because of the iniquity, verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face from you. Do you ever feel like in your sin that sometimes God punishes you? Well, he does. <laughs> he lets us live out the consequences of what we've, the ways we have, we have taken control of our lives and why we've made a mess of them. He, he allows us to suffer the consequences for a period of time. Here, it seems that the, the Isaiah is, is, is talking about unjust gain. This is greed. This is the, the desire to, to grab all that we can, to accumulate as much as we can, and to be such that the, the commentator would say, uh, James Oswald would say, this is, this is about coveting. This is about wanting what other people have, not just being comfortable with what we've got. In our catechism class, we talked about the fact that the first commandment is to love the Lord our God, to have no other gods but him. And the last commandment is not to covet. And in a way, they're connected. Because to covet is to basically say, Lord, what you've given me is not good enough. And so I want what they have or what they have. Or I want all of it. And to try to accumulate and, to, and out of our greed. But it's also an indictment against God because we're saying that what God has given us is not good enough. And so we, we crave for other things. You ever been in that situation? You wanted somebody else's life? Or some aspect of their life? Have you ever thought about the fact that in a sense, and, and Paul talks about this in Colossians, that this is basically idolatry. This is, this is coveting is, is, is me trying to to, to make something happen that God has not given to me. And in fact, at the end, it, it's to lose sight of the, the, the God who's blessed me with so much and who has my best in mind. He, he knows what's best for me, and that's why I can't run to covetousness I need to, and greed. I need, to, I need to run back to him and see him as the author and source of all good things. So Isaiah says, speaking for the Lord, the iniquity of his, of his greed, his covetous, was, I was angry. And I struck him and I hid my face from him. But he went on backsliding in his own heart. The problem with sin is that we can't stop sinning. No matter how hard we try. That's why in recovery groups, the, the, one of the first steps is admit that you're powerless to change. But to be contrite and to be lowly, to be humble, but to recognize that there's no strength within us to change. So what do we do? Verse 18. I have seen his ways, says the Lord, but I will heal him. I will lead him. I will restore and comfort him and his mourners. I think that's an important phrase because to recognize that to, to come to the point where we 
mourn for those things that we do, for how we have failed, for where we fall short, for the way we've been greedy and covetous. But the Lord says, this is something that I want to do as we, as we acknowledge our shortcomings The Lord wants to do these things for us, to heal us, to lead us, to restore us, and to comfort us. He he longs to do that. And what he requires for us is simply to not give up on him, to not cease to come to him with our mourning and our crying out with broken hearts and humble spirits. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. And Paul will pick up on this, and he does in our Ephesians passage, and says this is not only for, for the Jews, but this is also for the Gentile world outside, those who are far and those who are near. God is building a kingdom of contrite and lowly people who he is healing and leading and restoring and comforting. Even as... They're bold enough to admit their weakness. You see, we've got it all wrong. My friend Mark said the other day in our covenant group, he said, you know, I wish church was more like AA. When you go to AA, the first thing you do is you admit that you're an addict. And I think the problem in the church is oftentimes that that's the last thing we want to admit is that we're addicted to sin. Whatever brand or particular type of sin we are, we don't want to admit it. And that's the one thing that keeps us from being able to enjoy the fruit of all that God is proclaiming through Isaiah here today. The healing and the leading and the comforting that he wants to give to us is ours but that we admit. I'm not prepared for camp or whatever it is that you have to say today. Now it's interesting because the, the end part is peculiar. It, it seems like a, a divergence because having declared peace, God's gonna build up, that he's gonna, he's taking the initiative, that he's the one who's gonna work in our lives to restore us. The end phrase seems peculiar because it basically talks about the wicked who are like the tossed sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt, and there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Well, who are the wicked? The wicked are simply those who are so dominated by their own self-will and their own cravings and are unwilling to admit that they are powerless to change. That they remain metaphorically in a tossing sea. Years ago, when um, David and Tracy Lacanina uh, came to Florida, they uh, had a ski boat, which they have again, and, and they would, at, at some important points in, in, in a low, a contrite and lowly part of our ministry, a little to say, at, back at St. Michael's, uh, David and Tracy came into us. And, and you're right, David and Tracy have been around for a long time. People know their hospitality. But uh, when we first started going out with David and Tracy, we, we searched for places to take their ski boat out 
I know people think of it as a, a pulling a float, but it's a ski boat, okay? It's not, it's not for pulling floats. It's for, for skiers, okay? I just want to make, make that clear. And a place like Lake City, which is where they lived, you would think would have plenty of lakes to ski in. Not so much the case. So we finally found a place that David was sure would be good. Now, the tip-off should have been the name of this place. It was called Ocean Pond. And, 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 and so, you know, not everybody that lived before you is as dumb as you think they were. So they called it Ocean Pond because it was ceaselessly wavy, like the ocean, thus the name Ocean Pond. And yet, foolishly, we went out to Ocean Pond to try to use the ski boat or the float boat, and it was horrible. I mean, it was hard enough to get in, but, but get up. But if you fell down, you were in the midst of a tossing sea. And, you know, I think about all the stories of, of water and, you know, with my granddaddy in the ocean and, you know, trying to cross the St. John's River, in, you know, which is another stupid story I could tell you. And, but, but in all these situations, it's, it's the, it's the, the stupidity is continuing to go to Ocean Pond, which we did not do many times. But the wickedness is to continue to thumb our nose at the Lord. And to say, Lord, I'm going to keep pretending that I've got it together more than I do. And I'm going to continue to seek my own righteousness. And I'm going to, out of my own self-will, make my way through this life on my own. When Isaiah lays it out, it's so evident that how foolish that is. It's like trying to ski in ocean pond. It's like trying to go to the ocean and have a nice float on the water. You can't do it. There is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace. And, and it's not those who fail. It's those who are unwilling, who double down on their failure. And their sinfulness. And their self-will. And refuse to see that the God who is high and lofty, who dwells in eternity has come among us, us contrite and lowly heart. And that in our weakness, as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He takes us out of that turbulent water and he puts us in a place of rest. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much, Lord, for revealing your goodness and your, your compassion and mercy. It's, the colic is true, Lord. You, you show your greatness in mercy and pity towards us. Oh, Father, I pray that every heart, every person in this room, Lord, would yield their heart and mind to you. And that they would cry out, Lord, for your peace. And that you would heal and lead and restore them. And that they would know you the God who's willing to come to the most contrite and broken of heart. In Jesus' name, amen.